there are some shocking ways to be woken up. Some of them funny, like the high-voltage ejector bed that we just saw there. There are some ways to be woken up that are very alarming. I wonder if you've uh, spent some time on YouTube looking at wake-up pranks. Uh, Some very funny ones there. Some are alarming. A personal favourite shocking wake-up call in our house usually comes about 2am. Mum, I'm about to vomit. I discovered this week an alarm clock. Uh, If you haven't yet uh, bought a Father's Day present, you might like to keep this one in mind for next year, particularly if you've got a dozy, sleepy dad. This alarm clock is called Clocky. You put it next to your bed and it comes on wheels. And when Clocky starts ringing in the morning, Clocky gets louder and louder with every beep. And with every beep, it starts to engage its wheels so that it actually runs away from you around your room and uh, perhaps out the door and uh, the ad that shows it has it going down the street with you now chasing Clocky, getting louder and louder, uh, trying to wake you up. There's no snooze function with Clocky. A shocking wake-up. Well, Revelation 8 and 9 that we're looking at this morning is a shocking wake-up call. There's nothing funny about it. It's not entertaining. There's nothing gimmicky here. It is just shocking to wake us up. Now, it was originally addressed uh, to seven churches in the first century in Roman Asia who were going through hard times. The book of Revelation was a letter to them because they needed warm encouragement from God to persevere with Jesus. They were living at a time when it looked like the human emperor of the day, Domitian, was Lord, was boss, who ruled everything that they did. It was a time for them when they were facing real opposition, where they were marginalised, they were in poverty, they faced persecution. And these visions in the book of Revelation is to reveal Jesus to them, to show them the true Jesus and to show them the world from heaven's perspective so that they might persevere with Jesus. Now, when we look at chapters 2 and 3 in the the letters particularly addressed to them, we get a sense of of who these believers are and what they are going through. We see there that some of them, some of those churches needed warm encouragement to, to, to acknowledge the hard time that they were going through and to give them this warm encouragement to keep going. Chapter 6 and 7 that we looked at the last two weeks, they are about warm encouragement, opening the seals of God's scroll of his plans of salvation. And we see there the promises of salvation, warm encouragement to keep going with Jesus. Some of the churches needed that. Some of the churches needed a wake-up call, a high-voltage ejector bed to shock them to life again. And this is what we get in Revelation 8 and 9. It's a nightmarish vision of something real, true and shocking. Chapter 8 
begins with the opening of the seventh of the seals from chapter 6. Let's have a look at verse 1 again, please. Chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Silence. Amongst the noise of the visions in chapter 4 and 5 of the, of the rousing worship in heaven around the Lamb on the throne, among, amidst the great multitude of Revelation 7 that are praising God, there's silence. It's a moment to catch your breath, to brace yourself for what is next in the vision. We've seen God's scroll of salvation and judgment being opened and described by the seven seals, which we talked about as being the time between Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension and Jesus' return in the future. It was described by seven seals. And as we get into chapter 8 now, we're going to see it described in a different way by seven trumpets. And then still to come, a couple of chapters down the way, we'll get there in a few weeks' time, it's going to be described in seven bowls. Now each one of these visions and these descriptions, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, is a replay of history. It's another recount of the history between Jesus' ascension and his return. But with each new vision, the trumpets and then uh, the, the seals and then the trumpets and then the bowls, we get a more vivid and more uh, devastating description each time. And so Revelation 8 and 9 is a replay that's meant to be a shocking wake-up call to the seven churches. The trumpets blast them out of complacency. Blasts them out of their temptation to give up on Jesus. Halts their drift towards the morality of the world. It blasts them out of complacency. It wakes them up. It brings them to life again. And it's to have the same effect on us. Let's have a look at them from verse 6. Like a, a piercing fanfare it comes... The first four trumpets blast and they disturb the ecosystems of the world. A trumpet one, we read about in verse seven, which comes with hail and fire and blood, burning up a third of the trees and the green grass. Trumpet two in verses eight to nine, we, we, we uh, have described there a mountain of fire, sounds like a volcano. It's thrown into the sea to turn a third of the sea to blood and to destroy a third of the sea creatures and a third of the ships. When trumpet three blows in verses 10 to 11, it's described as a blazing star falling to the earth. Sounds like a meteor. It contaminates a third of the world's water supply. Trumpet four is described in verse 12. It darkens a third of the sun a third of the moon and a third of the stars to bring darkness on the earth. Now, if you have a maths brain, you're trying to add up all the thirds right now. If you have a science brain, 
you're wondering, wondering how one-third of the world's ecosystems can be affected and life still be sustained. For example, how, how can you destabilise a third of the sun and the sun happily keeps shining? If you're an environmentalist, this is devastating. Devastating for the earth and the environment. Devastating for humanity. It's a little bit hard to add all these things up, but it's, a, it's an image for us. It's supposed to be a devastating image with a significant proportion, a third of the earth being messed up, but just a third, not, not all of it yet. And, it. and it's supposed to be this devastating image of something that is horrible. Now, throughout the Bible, God uses devastating images and actual disasters to wake people up, to get their attention, to show that he is God, to tell us very clearly that rebellion against him is not okay, to urgently turn people to him, to repent, to stop going their own way and go God's way, to give up on self-reliance and our own moral systems to follow God's good way. This is exactly what was going on with the plagues in Egypt when God's Old Testament people and their leader Moses were enslaved in Egypt and God was going to lead his people out of Egypt and he sent plague after plague after plague that were devastating plagues affecting Pharaoh and the Egyptians. If you're not familiar with them, I encourage you to go back and read Exodus uh, 7 to 10. And have a look at this phrase of why God sent the plagues. There's this repeated refrain, so that you may know the Lord. God sent the gnats and God sent the frogs and God sent the blood in the water. So that you may know the Lord. You see, the purpose of these plagues, the purpose of devastating images, the purpose of actual disasters in the world is to reveal God. Same then as it is, as we're reading here in Revelation. Plagues and disasters are supposed to get our attention and turn our attention to God. Now that I've mentioned Exodus plagues, you might see that there's an echo of them in the background of the first four trumpets that have blown. Hail and fire and blood and bitter water. Darkness. In these first four trumpets, we've got this echo of the Exodus plagues, but what we have in this devastating image of Revelation is, is worse than what was there in Exodus. And there's worse to come. Have a look with me, please, in verse 13. Chapter 8, verse 13. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe! Woe! Woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. Trumpets 5 and 6 are described in chapter 9. We're going to read through that now. Trumpet 5 describes affliction in this age, but also talks of the protection for those who belong to Jesus. Let's read from chapter 9, verse 1. 
The fifth angel sounded his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. Now an abyss is translated as as a bottomless pit. And as we read of this star that has fallen, it's an angel, an angel that has fallen. And in Luke chapter 10, Jesus describes Satan as a fallen star, a fallen angel. This star, fallen angel, Satan, verse 2, when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss and out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Remember back in chapter 7 that we were reading last week, Judgment was being held back until the seal had been placed on those who belonged to God, until they were marked out as belonging to Jesus. Here they are protected. Verse 5, they were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. There's going to be a limited time of affliction. Five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The affliction that will come on those who do not belong to Jesus during this time will be so horrible, awful and devastating, people will wish they were dead. Verse 7, the locusts look like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek Apollon. That means destroyer. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. That's trumpet five. It's describing affliction in this age that is brought about by this fallen angel Satan and his agents being described like locusty, horsey, liony, scorpion, who in this age will bring affliction and judgment on people so terrible that they would wish they were dead. But the promises here of protection for those who belong to Jesus. Verse 13, we continue reading as the seventh trumpet is described. Verse 13. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, 
Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now these are the angels who were holding back the judgment in chapter 7. Here they are being released and this trumpet describes the devastating death that comes on those who are unrepentant. Let's continue in verse 15. The four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue and yellow as sulphur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions and out of their mouths came fire, smoke and sulphur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke and sulphur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails for their tails were like snakes having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. That's trumpet six describing the devastating death of the unrepentant, describing fierce judgment coming on this age to turn people back to God, just like in the Exodus. But every time the Pharaoh saw one of the plagues and God got his attention, he then hardened his heart and continued in his unrepentance. The sixth trumpet, trumpet is a description of people who are like that in this age. God sends affliction to get our attention, to notice God. But like the Pharaoh, many harden their hearts and do not repent to the work of their hands and go back to worshipping their own idols and gods and their own following their own moral compass. Trumpet 6 describes the devastating death of the unrepentant. Trumpet 7, that's not quite yet. We'll get to it. One of the challenges to belief in God, one of the challenges to believing that God exists, that there is a supreme being who rules over the world, who calls us to account. One of the challenges to belief in God is, well, if God is all-powerful, if he is all-supreme, and if God is all-loving, how can God have anything to do with devastating stuff like this that we're reading about here this morning? We've got these images here of devastating judgment. But we don't need to be reminded of how horrible and awful the world and our lives can be by reading it here. 
If God is all-powerful and God is all-loving, all how is it that we have sickness and cancer? Sadness. Brokenness in relationships. Uncertainty and anxiety about where we stand with one another, that we have tragedy in the world. And so the challenge to belief in God is, well, either God is not all-loving or God is not all-powerful. Unless, somehow, unless somehow God is powerfully working His love in and through all these things, including devastation and judgment, to bring about His greater plans of salvation. This is what we see at the cross of Christ. God is right there in it. In the greatest devastation and judgment this world has ever known, God is right there in it so that God feels every whip cord. God heard every spiteful word. The dirty spit that came out of the soldiers' mouths landed on his face. He felt the prick of every thorn. Every punch hit him. Every kick winded him. The nails, the pain, the shame, the struggle to breathe. Death. It's not a pretty picture. It's a shocking picture. The most horrendous torture and shame that is known to history. The most devastating punishment and judgment of evil to die under the full weight of burden and offense of sin, and God is right there in it. And why? To get the attention of those who turned their back on him. To deal with the offence of their sin. To draw them back into relationship with him. God is there in it. Now, God takes no delight in devastating stuff, in judgment. But he's so powerful and so loving that he wraps it up into his good plan to, to deal with our sin, to get our attention and to turn us to him. Have a look at these words from 2 Peter chapter 3. Words that were reminding and, 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 and pointing God's people to the truth and the reality of a day of judgment. It says, The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. 
Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God takes no delight in the devastating stuff, but he's so powerful and so loving, he wraps it up in his good plan to deal with sin, to get our attention and turn us to him in repentance. It's there so we might wake up. I'm going to say to you this morning, if you're not a believer, if you're not somebody who has trusted your life to Jesus, if you've not yet turned back to God in repentance, wake up. Last Sunday, I invited you to accept Jesus' promise in Revelation 7. A wonderful promise of of life as it should be. An eternity where we will never hunger, where we will never thirst. Where the world will be put right, where there will be no tears. A wonderful promise. And I said last week that that's not an easy promise to accept. As, As wonderful as it sounds, it's not an easy promise to accept because it turns our life upside down. It means we've got to give up on relying on ourselves. It means we've got to turn our moral compass from being who we want to be and what we want to be to having our whole lives reshaped around Jesus and who he is. That's not easy to do. And so I encouraged you to to think about that, to not put it in that Dropbox folder and just forget about it. Well, today... I don't think I can share this part of the Bible with you if you're an unbeliever without urging you, wake up. You see, the promise of a world put right, as we see in 2 Peter 3, that promise of a world put right comes via God's judgment of all that is wrong. Wake up to it. Don't just lie back in the couch like a dad after lunch on Father's Day and doze off. Don't do that with this. Take action. Turn to Jesus. Wake up. Now I want to give you a moment to think about that. In a little while, I'm going to lead us in prayer, lead you in prayer. A prayer of waking up and turning back to God in repentance. I'm going to talk for a little moment to those who are followers of Jesus. I'm going to invite you to pray with me in a moment to wake up. If you are a follower of Jesus... This vision in Revelation tells us to wake up too. The comfort of our couch and blessed assurance knowing that our eternal uh, salvation is secure can make us fall asleep, fall asleep in God's mission. And we we need to wake up. 
You see, knowing the devastation that Jesus endured on the cross for us and knowing the devastating reality of judgment when Jesus returns, we will want to be urgent in reaching out to others, in making Jesus known. We're talking about Japan this morning. Let's just talk about Japan for a little bit more. 127 million people live in Japan. And while they have one of the longest life expectancies in the world, with only about 1.2 million Christians in the country, it is very, very unlikely that a Japanese person will meet a Christian in their lifetime. See how amazing a thing it is that God is using Kel to reach out to unbelievers one by one by one? It seems like such a small and insignificant thing, but in a country where about 125 million people will die never having met a Christian. What an amazing thing that Kel is equipping students for making Jesus known, like Maria, one by one. It's a work that is so worthy of our generous investment, investing our prayers in that work, investing our money in that work. Even some of us going to work alongside Kel. Let's not get sleepy in remembering her and supporting her. And at the same time, let's not get sleepy in being like her. We need to be urgent and warm and passionate and persuasive in making Jesus known. Right here. Now, I think one of the reasons that we hold back in reaching out to others round about us is because we're so weighed down with our own struggles in life, our our mess and our troubles. We've all got it. Busyness, sickness, money stress, parenting, stress in marriage, lack of sleep, trying to get my weight where I want it to be, getting clarity in my job, sorting out conflict in my wider family, organising care for ageing parents, hiding an addiction, keeping my mental health in check. One of the reasons that we, I think we hold back in reaching out to others is because we're, we're so weighed down by our own struggles and our mess and our troubles. Maybe, maybe this is the context God would like us to be in from which to reach out to others. What if we saw our mess and our struggles and our troubles as the opportunity that God gives us for making Jesus known? One of the slogans that we have talked about here as a church reflects our city. CBR, confident, bold, ready. Confident in grace, bold in prayer, ready for making Jesus known. We can be ready for making Jesus known, not because we've done a course in evangelism, not because we're gone off to Bible college, not because we're somebody who is very outward and bubbly, 
No, because we are confident in grace, because we know who we are, accepted by Jesus and secure in relationship with him, and because we are bold in prayer, knowing that God can do more than we ask or imagine, because we are confident in grace, because we're bold in prayer, we are ready for making Jesus known. Even if I'm busy, if I'm sick, if I'm stressed about marriage, if I'm parenting, if I'm tired, if life is just not sorted out the way that I would like it to be, maybe this is the context that God would like me to be in from which I reach out in making Jesus known. And so rather than thinking about perhaps what we can't do, what we can do, learning to warmly and genuinely share a sentence or two about the true Jesus in the midst of our real life. And we'll be able to do that if we don't doze off. We stay alert, wake up and stay alert. I want to suggest an idea that you might like to take away today and, 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 and take this on board as something that might help you in this area. There's seven trumpets in this vision, seven trumpets, seven days in a week. Can you think of seven people that you could share a warm and persuasive sentence or two about the true Jesus and how he meets you in the reality of your life? Seven trumpets, seven people, then to pray for one a day across seven days. After you get through a week, just go back to the start of the week and keep going. Seven trumpets, seven people, seven days of prayer. Revelation 8 and 9 is a devastating image, a shocking image. It's a wake-up call. It's here to grab our attention, to grab your attention if you're not yet a follower of Jesus and to turn you to him. For those of us that are followers of Jesus, just to grab our attention and remind us of this devastating urgency of making Jesus known and to stay alert in that. Let's be awake. Let's pray. I'm going to first lead in prayer. Those, for those who are not yet following Jesus, who want to be awake to God. Let's pray together. Our great God, this image is a wake-up call. It helps us to see that as a world we ignore and reject you. And God, I admit that I have ignored you, tried to do life my own way, And I admit that I was wrong in that.
I'm sorry about that. I now realise that you are boss. That you are worthy of all honour and glory and worship. And so I turn back to you. Please forgive me. Please accept me. Please give me confidence in your grace. Please keep me following after Jesus. Lord God, we pray for everyone here that we will know the confidence of your grace, that we will be bold in prayer, knowing that you are in control of all things. Please help us to be ready for making Jesus known. Help us to reach out to our neighbours and our friends and our family, our work colleagues, our schoolmates. In the mess and trouble of our life, please help us to say something warm about the true Jesus. We thank you, Lord God, that you are always with us that you keep encouraging us with your word and by your spirit in us. Please use us to be an encouragement to one another as well. Please help us to be an encouragement this morning to those who might have woken up to you for the first time. Please use us to share and reach out to those among us who are not yet believers to keep warmly and persuasively pointing them to Jesus for the glory of Jesus. Amen.